through some of the questions that you left. If you have comments or questions as we go along, just please raise your hand. First one, it says, do you believe a person who has a lot of emotional and self-esteem problems, such as your average American these days, is seriously handicapped on the path to enlightenment and liberation compared to a less diseased person seeking enlightenment? I think the nature of being unenlightened is to be diseased, namely that there's the presence of various unwholesome factors in the mind which cause us suffering. And so really, it seems to me, which particular brand each one of us has You've probably noticed by now that the personality structure is weird. (laughs) And we all are that way. (laughs) Um. So whether it's one particular emotional problem or another, I don't think it makes too much difference. Given a certain minimal level of stability and balance, we need to be stable enough to be able to practice mindfulness. And there are some, some kinds of emotional disturbance in which there's not even that much space in the mind which allows one to practice it. But I don't think anybody here falls into that category most of the time. (laughs) The Buddha talked a lot about different kinds of psychological disorders. Um, You know, in in quite classical ways in Buddha Dhamma. I think Sharon gave a talk on you know, the different personality types, the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. Just as basic, strong patterns in our mind. Not that we have only one of them. Most of us have a share of all three, but one may be predominant. It said actually that the angry types although they suffer the most, actually often get enlightened the quickest because it's so unpleasant. (laughs) It's like when there's strong anger and aversion in the mind, the dukkha, the suffering, is so apparent. It's not hidden at all. Greed has a way of hiding the suffering. You know, we actually think we're enjoying ourselves. (laughs) And the deluded type doesn't know what's going on. But it's really, 
in some way doesn't make any difference because we work with the particular conditioning in the mind. I think what's most important and a trap that we easily fall into with regard to the thrust of this question is that we easily solidify the sense of self in an identification with a particular pattern, emotional emotional pattern. We can identify with being angry. We can identify with being greedy, with having low self-esteem, with having excess esteem. And we create this strong sense of self and we solidify this particular pattern in the mind. We lose sight of the fact that each of these qualities are also impermanent and insubstantial. They arise in a particular moment and they pass away in that moment. And when they're not there, they are not there. It's not that they're waiting someplace. Given certain conditions, they may arise again and they may arise frequently. But if we can see the impermanence of an emotion or of a mind state, and we see its basic insubstantiality, it becomes much easier to begin to work with it. It's much more difficult if we have this sense, yes, I'm fearful, I'm angry, I'm greedy, and for the next 20 years I have to work on this problem. The work we have to do is much more on a moment-to-moment level, and once we see the possibility of that, there's a tremendous confidence that comes and a tremendous lightening in the mind. It's not that these unwholesome factors or emotional difficulties stop coming, but we relate to them in a very different way. We need to hear much more about the practice being everything we do. Many of us regard sitting as practice, then it is business as usual, that is, we do not change. Hopefully by now you have a sense of the the essential non-differentiation between sitting and walking and everything we do all day long. In any moment, there's the knowing and an object. In Pali, and this is something that just runs throughout the teachings, and so just as phrases it might be useful to hear and remember, the phrase nama-rupa. Nama means mental events, rupa means physical events. Mentality and, and materiality. In every moment, what we are taking to be self, what we are taking to be I, 
is nama rupa, is mental physical elements coming together, passing away, coming together, passing away. It's nama rupa when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we're going to the bathroom, when we're eating, when we're walking down the hall. Essentially, it is the same process. And so it's extremely important to bring that understanding to the way we practice so we don't fall into the very common misunderstanding that meditation means sitting or even sitting and formal walking practice and that everything else is somehow inferior. It's so obviously not like that. Which is why the emphasis very much during the retreat and something to continue to give tremendous value to is the care that you take in every activity you do all day long. Could you make the whole day as if it were a sitting? The same care that you bring to the sitting practice or the walking practice, can you bring that care to everything? Not only is this a true reflection of Dhamma understanding, it's also a tremendous training for leaving the retreat and going back to your life outside because most of you are not going to be sitting and walking all day long. You know, you'll be doing things. In some way, you could understand the development of mindfulness as the development of a good habit of mind. It's not something esoteric and it's not something you know, that's, that's limited to a particular environment. It's just a quality of paying attention. When it's well established, it comes with us, it follows us, it travels with us. It travels well. And it makes such a difference in how we live our lives the time here is a tremendous training time. You know, the little things, reaching for the cup, standing up, sitting down, turning, showering, the whole day. So please don't undervalue or underestimate it. When you read the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse the Buddha gave, and it's so beautiful because He says, if you want to free the mind from suffering, this is what you do. And it's just, he lays the whole path out in this very short discourse, this short sutta, on the four foundations of mindfulness, of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and of mind objects. There were a few questions which I put a little later, but I'll talk about now.
Some people were confused about the last two of these foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body was clear, and mindfulness of feelings was clear. That is, whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. There was confusion about mindfulness of the mind, which is the third foundation, and mindfulness... The Pali word is mindfulness of the Dhamma. And so it's hard to, that's a very hard word to translate in a single term. The third application of mindfulness, awareness of the mind, has to do with noticing and noting how the mind is colored in any particular moment. That is, is there a greedy mind, angry mind, deluded mind, loving mind, compassionate mind? how the mind is conditioned or colored or influenced by the various mental factors that may arise. So that's the third foundation of mindfulness. The fourth foundation, which is is mindfulness of the Dhamma, sometimes it's translated as awareness of mental objects which is a little confusing because that seems the same as the third. Mindfulness of the Dhamma, for the most part, refers to how different mind states function. For example, it's mindfulness of the hindrances. So we're aware of the mind state, for example, of desire or anger, And we understand that that is functioning as a hindrance in the mind. It's functioning as a quality which obscures concentration or hinders concentration. So we're mindful of the hindrances. This is mindfulness of the Dhamma. We're mindful of the seven factors of enlightenment. These also are mind states but we're understanding the particular role they are playing. So we become aware of energy, we become aware of rapture, we become aware of calm. And we see that they're functioning as a factor of liberation. Become aware of the six sense bases, six sense objects, and six kinds of consciousness. It's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So this last application of mindfulness is analytic in this particular way. Is that clear to you, the distinction? There's a lot of overlapping in terms of either physical elements or mental elements, but in this fourth foundation, we're really seeing how these particular elements are working. During the sitting, I developed a beautiful headache. What do I put attention on during walking? Mostly in the walking meditation, even if there are strong sensations elsewhere in the body, 
think it's helpful to keep the mind focused on the movement of the feet and the legs and the sensations you feel. Sometimes, whether it's a headache or some other very predominant sensation in the body, if it's very strong and keeps pulling your attention away, you can do one of two things. You can stop, focus on that sensation, notice what happens to it, and then begin walking again. Or for some short time, you can actually walk and just keep your attention focused at that place that's predominant. So there are three different ways. Walk and ignore it, stop and focus on it, or focus on it while you're walking. See how flexible the technique is. Okay, this is a whole series of questions. These questions always are the most predominant. If there is no self, (laughs) no soul, no continuity, what is it that gets reborn? How could the Buddha know his previous existences if all these all something is arising and passing away? I don't have any sense of who or what I was in my last incarnation. In a very real sense, that being is dead. What is it that reincarnates? And what is the point of practice if I'm going to disappear anyway? (laughs) In some way, that is the point of practice. (laughs) If, If there is no self, who is it that carries karma and is reborn over and over again? An important part of the Buddhist teaching is no self. There is no solid, permanent entity behind the idea of I. There are also stories of the Buddha and others who recall detailed accounts of previous lives. How does one reconcile these seemingly contradictory bodies of information? What is the mechanism that carries memory from one lifetime to another? How is it different from a soul, spirit, or self? If there's no self, how come? <laughs> First, to, to distinguish something that is often confused. In the Buddhist teaching of selflessness, what we experience is that there is no unchanging entity to whom things are happening. It's not like there's a, what could be called in this context, a soul or a self or an I or anything that is unchanging, that is the receiver of all experience. Rather, what we are, what this nama rupa, what this thing is that we call self, 
what it is, is a process of elements arising and passing, arising and passing. It's not that they're happening to someone. What we are is this process of changing elements. But to say this does not mean that there is no pattern to the unfolding, that it's chaotic or that everything just, you know, explodes into random events. The process of change itself is lawful, which is why that which we call Joseph, or any one of us, we can see certain patterns over a day, over a year, over a lifetime. There's a familiarity. As we look in the mirror in the morning from one day to the next, there's some sense that... Uh, because there is a pattern to the changes. It becomes easier to understand the idea of rebirth. And here, just as a kind of a technical linguistic point, there's often a distinction made between people who care to make such distinctions between rebirth and reincarnation. Because reincarnation often refers to the view that there is a self or soul which goes from one life to another. Something solid, something enduring that is in this life and then is carried to the next life. The Buddhist idea of rebirth is not that but rather there is a continuity to the process of change with each moment conditioning the arising of the next. And so it is called a process of becoming. This becomes this, becomes this, becomes this in the same way as I think we've probably mentioned. You you plant a seed and it becomes a sapling, becomes a tree, becomes a fruit, new seed, new sapling, new tree. There is no entity unchanging which is carried from that first seed into the seed of the fruit. It's not that that first seed is carried up the trunk of the tree and somehow splits into... No, it's the seed becomes something. And then it becomes something, becomes something. It's a process of continuous transformation. This mind-body process is just like that. In each moment, there is an arising, a passing, conditioning the next moment of arising, next moment of passing. The clearer we can see that right in this lifetime, right in this sitting, right in this moment, when we see the arising and passing away of phenomena moment to moment, it becomes much easier to intuitively understand death consciousness, rebirth consciousness. Because we see how the process is working right now in terms of this mental, physical constellation coming into being, dissolving, but conditioning the next arising. 
memory is a function of one particular mental factor which arises in every moment of consciousness, then according to the Abhidhamma theory, which is the Buddhist psychology, you know, there's consciousness, which is the knowing faculty, and then in every moment of knowing, there arises a whole variety of different mental factors or qualities. Some of them are called common factors, which mean they arise in every moment. Some arise occasionally. Some are wholesome, some are unwholesome. The factor of perception, which carries the memory, is a common factor. Because each moment is conditioning the next, it allows this function of memory to work. It's like imprinting you know, in a piece of, imprinting a seal in a piece of wax. You take the seal away, the wax is imprinted, but there's nothing from the seal which is carried over. There's no piece of, piece of the seal which remains embedded in the wax. But there is an imprint, a conditioning. In exactly that way, each moment is imprinting the next, imprinting the next, imprinting the next. And so just as some of us can remember things in this life, (laughs) people with very powerful concentration can actually remember this series of imprintings through past lives. And it's quite phenomenal even to imagine how it's done unless one has attained that level of samadhi. I once asked this teacher in Calcutta, this woman, Deepama, who is just the most extraordinary yogi and and being, who developed the very high stages of enlightenment and of samadhi, of concentration and powers of mind. She was telling us uh, with some prompting about some of the things she did And she said that in her meditation, she went back in her mind to the time of the Buddha, to listen to the Buddha giving discourses, which just sounded, (laughs) you know, I couldn't even begin to imagine how she did that. (laughs) So I asked her, (laughs) and I could hardly believe her when she told me how she did it. She said that she went back moment by moment. Now, in our ordinary consciousness, that's, it's unthinkable. But the powers of the mind which we just don't know about, you know, but which are potential in the mind, in all of our minds. And so it's quite inspiring even to get glimpses of possibilities. You know, that this mind that we sit and struggle with hour after hour and day after day. Um, I'm trying just to think of it. Of an Im- it's like we're, we're working the mind to make it pliable. Right? And we just, we work it. You know, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. But consciousness 
becomes extremely malleable. And the more we the more we practice, just some amazing things begin to open up in terms of what's possible, in terms of our understanding. Remember whose memory you're dealing with now. I'll get to it in a minute, as best I can, but there's a story that it reminds me of. <laughs> Did I tell you the story of uh, the dullard? Who, you know, he, he really wanted to get enlightened, and, and his brother gave him a four-line verse. And the second line, he tried to remember this verse, and he'd learn one line, and then he'd learn the second line and would push out the first one. <laughs> and then he'd get to the third and he'd push out the second. but what I felt was an underlying misperception actually in all of the questions underlying them 
was that because there's a discontinuity of physical events, there was an assumption of a discontinuity of mental events. And there are realms, for example, of being where there is no body. There is just consciousness. And so somebody who had the psychic, the ability, the power of mind to be watching this process, which can be done, you would see the continuity in the same way that even though when you look back to how you were when you're four and now, it seems so different, but you can understand the thread of content, the chain which leads from that to this, you would be able to see the thread of continuity of consciousness, which, is, which can be quite independent of the physical body. And so it's not unrelated. The death consciousness, the quality of death consciousness, the quality of mind in that moment is the conditioning factor for the rebirth consciousness. And so there's a very direct uh, linking between the two. In the same way that you're four and all these things happened, and you're five and six and seven, and, and each event conditions and leads to the next. Um, Is there any um, direct experience of, of like the, that connection? Or is this just simply taken on authority by saying that, that some teacher said so? No, well, pe- people who have that particular power of mind can see it. You know, and... and it's from the time of the Buddha and maybe even before, but even until today. And as I mentioned, some of the, some of the teachers I've had who've developed in that way can see that. Um, but it just takes a tremendous, a tremendous development of power of mind. I think it's very important for you to understand that this power of mind is not the same thing as wisdom or enlightenment. You know, because people can develop these powers and not necessarily be enlightened. So it's just not to confuse the two. Power is one thing and wisdom is another. You speak of human rebirth over eons, yet humans in their present configuration have only been around a few million years. Poetic license, metaphor, please comment. Again, this has to do with a particular world view that mostly most of us in the West share. And it's quite, uh, what's the word? human, earth, solar system, galaxy, centered. That is what we can see, what's visible to us. And it's true that humans on this earth have been around a few million years. In the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist cosmology, and again, something that can be understood by each of us if we had 
you know, the development of mind, the system is very big, it's huge. And it talks about many planes of existence and many world systems. And so this is just one little piece of the whole show. And things didn't start a few million years ago. You know, this Buddha talked about this going on basically beginning from beginningless. There was no beginning to it. Sometimes in hearing or you know, thinking about a whole different way of viewing things, a lot of doubt comes up in the mind. You know, because we don't have much cultural uh, background for this way of seeing things or understanding. What I'd suggest is uh, just stay open to possibilities. It's not necessary to believe something that you haven't experienced because that also can become just another blind belief Just staying open, because there are tremendous mysteries, and our understanding is very limited. And that openness of mind provides a foundation just for further exploration. We don't limit ourselves because of an attachment to a view. There are two related questions here, or three. Rather than take pride in my practice, I often feel ashamed at my indulgence in peace and joy while the rest of humanity struggles to keep the ball rolling. Is this the third temptation of the Buddha? Will you elaborate on that temptation? It's another. Would you please talk about the selfish aspect of devoting much of one's life to practice as against a life of more obvious service. Of course, everyone who comes into contact with one benefits from a uh, practice, but does that really compare with more direct help with the world's problems? What about the relative karma associated with the two? How can we distinguish the difference between protection of our practice and using the concept of protection as a justification for clinging and grasping? These are really important questions in terms of understanding what we're doing here and development of practice with respect to the immense amount of suffering that exists in the world and the possibilities of service to alleviate that suffering. I think what is important to understand is that suffering exists on many different levels some of which is very obvious. You know, we look around in the world and it's really horrendous. 
you know, the, the levels of pain and difficulty and suffering that people live in due to a whole variety of social and economic and political causes. And obviously the compassion that arises in one's heart is to try to help in some way. The suffering that exists in the world can also be seen as symptoms. And they're symptoms of greed in the mind and hatred in the mind and delusion in the mind. Why is there injustice and why is there poverty and why is there hunger? They're there because of the tremendous power these defilements have in the mind. They run many people's lives and have this tremendous impact in the world. And so we can see that a very deep way of service and a very deep expression of compassion is to actually uproot the causes of suffering. And we start with ourselves, at least to some extent. And to the degree that we even understand the way to uproot greed in the mind and hatred in the mind and delusion in the mind, we then can become, even to a limited extent, a vehicle for helping others to uproot it in their mind. This is not to create a polarity between this kind of compassionate action and work to alleviate the symptoms because they actually go together and we can do both. There are times to work on ourselves and to free our minds. There are times to help other people free their minds. And there are times to actually get in there and do what's needed in the particular moment. We don't have to become narrow in our view of what compassionate action means. The freer our minds are, the more effective our action will be. Then there's another whole level of looking at this, which I think very much was at the core of the Buddha's great compassion. And that is seeing the suffering not only of this life and not only of this planet, but seeing the immensity of suffering of beings caught on this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death, revolving through realms sometimes of great happiness and sometimes through realms of tremendous suffering. And he saw this endless wandering because of ignorance, because of not understanding. And so he was not addressing 
just the suffering of the moment. The path of freeing the mind has to do with stepping off of this wheel and helping others to step off of this wheel. One thing that this relates to in a very practical way for how you're even doing this retreat, we have a very, uh, very often a very limited time frame for our endeavors. Now, often people, certainly before it starts, have an idea, you know, I'm going to do this three-month retreat and I'm going to just do it, you know, and this is going to be it. You probably have a sense now. Three months goes like, it's just a moment. You know, and a lot can be done, and a huge amount remains to be done. This path of freeing the mind, it's not a question of three months. You know, it's our life. And it will take many three-month retreats you know, and many expressions of compassion and action in the world. So if we can enlarge our scope, if we can enlarge the picture of things, it really provides a much more balanced context for how we're working. It's like we can see the importance and we can work with a quality of ardency, but without that sense of pressure on oneself. We know, okay, each step, this three-month course is a nice step on the path. And it's one of many. Not at all. And in fact, very often the less one knows about the theory, the more success there is. Because the mind can also get very reflective about all this. Um, There can be a skillful use of it for some people. You know, it can... For some people, create an environment of inspiration to actually do the work. Other people, it may be really foreign to. When I began my practice, I had studied philosophy at college, and I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, and I went to the monks, my first meeting with the monks. I went with a copy of Spinoza in my hand, and I was going to convert the monks. <laughs> you know. I mean, I was so imbued with the Western philosophical point of view, I had no background in this at all. And this whole idea of karma and rebirth and realms of existence, and and it's just been very interesting for me to 
see the mind opening to these possibilities. It comes out of the practice. It comes out of one's understanding of oneself. What I would suggest is actually to suspend belief in both and take a look. Because the Buddha said that the whole world exists within this fathom-long body. I don't know exactly how long a fathom is. But it's all in here. You know, everything we need to discover, which is another miracle, that it's all here. And really what we need to do is develop very carefully the tools of investigation, you know, which is one of the great gifts of the teaching. It's not a belief system. And it doesn't depend on a belief system. Now, really, you could see the work you're doing just as the development, the honing, the sharpening of these very powerful tools of mind, of concentration, of attention, of mindfulness. And it all opens up through that. The question was about the Dalai Lama's statement that if he had to choose between teaching about karma and teaching about emptiness, he would teach about the law of karma. And if there are different implications for practice between those two. The way I understood his remark, and I don't know the whole context of it, was not so much the deeper implications for practice, but the possibilities for misunderstanding and misuse of the concepts. Because sort of a spiritual danger in the idea of emptiness is that nothing matters. It's all empty. And so why do anything? Or why take care with one's actions? that would be a perversion of the real understanding of emptiness. But from a strictly intellectual point of view, that might arise. And so it's for that reason that I imagined Dalai Lama saying he would prefer teaching the law of karma so we really understand the importance of actions 
the importance of this law of cause and effect. It's from that, it's from that understanding that we even are motivated to practice. We practice because we think there will be a certain kind of result. If we didn't have that basic belief, why would you subject yourself to this? <laughs> you know, we do it because of the faith or confidence or understanding that this leads to this. That mindfulness actually can lead to the freeing of the mind. And so understanding the law of karma becomes the basis for realizing emptiness. And that was my sense of why he put that first. Emptiness does not mean that things aren't there. Emptiness refers to the emptiness of self, the emptiness of I, the insubstantiality of phenomena. But this process of nama-rupa this process of empty phenomena is happening lawfully. It's happening according to the law of karma as well as, as, well as other laws. Michelle said that rapture was developed by wise attention to our good deeds and, I believe, our good qualities. This sounds like we'd be giving attention to a self which doesn't exist and would be solidifying it. How then to develop rapture? This is a really interesting uh, psychological point. Because there's an assumption made that by reflecting on one's good deeds, we necessarily are identifying with them or creating, strengthening the sense of self. That would be a strengthening of wrong view. There is a way of understanding how the mind works, which is that Reflection on wholesome qualities, reflection on wholesome past actions brings about a sense of joy. It brings about a lightness in the mind from understanding the law of karma. This kind of action brings this kind of result. We can do that free of a sense of self, free of a sense of I. And it's interesting to me how easily understood that is in at least some of the Asian cultures I've been in and how difficult it is for us in the West. We have a hard time reflecting on the good qualities in the mind. You know, we have an easy time reflecting on the bad ones. And there's a lot of self-judgment and a lot of unworthiness and a lot of self-hatred and
just as a special pre-Thanksgiving treat. Spend five minutes in your next sitting just reflecting on past good actions. You know, times of being generous, times of being loving, of being kind, of insight, of wisdom. And just watch. Watch what it does to the mind. We're not so bad. (laughs) You know, we've all done lots of nice things. It's said that metta, love and kindness, the proximate cause of metta or loving kindness to arise is the seeing of good quality, the good qualities of other people. And obviously, if we're focusing on the bad qualities of people, it's not going to be the condition for metta to arise. It's going to more likely be aversion. But when we focus on their good qualities, we have this loving feeling. Can we do that with ourselves? It's nice. In the area of greed and desire, in the case where it is not harmful to others, what should be the proportion of renunciation versus just seeing clearly? I'm not sure there's a difference. Because if we are really seeing clearly, what does that mean? That means Vipassana. Vipassana, seeing clearly. Seeing clearly means we're seeing the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, the selflessness of the phenomena. Desire arises, we see it clearly. It arises, it passes away. The seeing clearly itself becomes the renunciation. And the quality of renunciation, as we understand it, really comes to bear when we're not seeing clearly. You know, in that moment when we're caught in the desire for one reason or another, and then we see it, we might then consider, okay, do I go with this or do I renounce it? This brings up a, uh, something I wanted to mention, this quality of renunciation. There are about three more weeks of intensive practice, which is amazing. Just this is a good time to practice renunciation because the tendency of the mind will be at first in very little ways and then in gradually bigger ways, you know, a winding down. It's a big mistake. Watch the ways in which the mind is looking out or reaching out. Just a few examples of it that have come up. Maybe more inclination to write notes or some more inclination to talk 
a very seductive one, which has slowly becoming rampant, is the underground, uh, the underground <laughs> generosity circuit. You know, of people just leaving little things on other people's cushions or in their shoes or, you know, on their dishes. It's a wonderful quality. Wait till integration week. There's actually something deeper that can be accomplished if you stay very impeccably with the practice with yourself. That takes a level of renunciation because these impulses come up in the mind. Whether it's to talk or to write a note or whatever, you know, or to to make a gesture. And so it takes seeing that, seeing it clearly, and just with a lot of gentleness, a lot of lovingness, just no, no, I'm not gonna do that. To really settle back because you will find that it is a tremendous conservation of energy. It's extreme to dissipate the energy of practice. read a few practice questions. We are often asked to look closely. What does this mean? How can I know when I am looking closely enough? What is the opposite of looking closely? Is it possible to look too closely? (laughs) If I perceive faint sensations of the breath, am I not looking closely enough? Is it the same as seeing clearly? And how does this fit with just being with the experience as it is? It's a good question because um, there can be too much effort. You know, and one can get kind of mentally scrunched up in an effort to look closely on the one hand. And on the other hand, the mind can be so lax that it's not generating any right aim at all. And so somehow it's finding the balance between... not aiming and getting getting too tight. Just as an example of the range you can play with. When you're moving, suppose you're reaching for something. 
if you're reaching and you're noting lifting, moving, placing, you're not looking closely enough. (laughs) So that's... That's a clear sign. Okay, so the next step is... Come back. You're reaching, and you know you're reaching. Okay, that's a step in the right direction. You know you're reaching. That's the beginning of right aim. Looking even more closely can be, as you're reaching, you're feeling the sensations of reaching. That's a different level. One is simply knowing you're moving, and the second is actually feeling the movement. It may get too much if you're struggling to find sensations that are not there. And so you don't want to force it or struggle. You want very gently, you move. At first, you simply know you're moving. And then feel the movement. And just be with what's there in a very simple way. You don't have to strain. You don't have to struggle. Stay very light with that. So there's the range. Okay, if it comes up quite spontaneously and you're right aware, you're aware right in that moment that it's, then it's no problem. If you go, you know, several several movements, lifting, moving, placing, and, and you don't know that the note is incorrect, so that's some indication that there's a missing link. But if you see that note, you know that, okay, where did that come from? And you know that it's not the correct note, then it's no problem. Did you understand the, the range of looking closely without getting tight in it? Sort of bringing the attention in carefully and then being with whatever is there, not struggling and not straining. There are times in the practice where one's normal sense of spatial relations gets <laughs> very uh, different. You know, and so maybe you've had the experience in sitting. Uh, it's like the whole form of the body can disappear. You don't know what's up and what's down and where the head is or can feel like the head is you know, over here. <laughs> Or in walking, I mean, many people describe, you know, it's like sinking into the floor and they're walking on, you know, rolling waves or the walls are doing weird things. 
You know, you go to Eden. <laughs> if you can just note missing, <laughs> missing. <laughs> Mostly, the, the big disorientation happens in transition periods. After some time, one gets a little familiar with kind of that altered perception and you learn how to work work within it. But in the transition times, as first going into it or exploring it, it can be quite disorienting. At one time in my practice, I was doing this walking meditation and it was just like being on the deck of a ship that was just... You know, and I went kind of running to my teacher. It was It was so disconcerting it was just really hard to, to, to take a step and mostly I was walking it was on the roof of this monastery in India his only advice to me was don't walk too near the edge <laughs> you know? and sometimes people actually do it. they have to hold on to walls at those times in fact where it's just so it actually can be a sign of deepening practice in the sense that our usual sense of solidity of things is beginning to break up. This world is not what it appears to be. Now, mostly we live on the world of appearance and solidity and concept and we think we have everything figured out. As we look deeper... It's like looking through this high-powered microscope. It's whole new levels of reality open up. And sort of trying to navigate through that takes some practice. No, that's okay. It actually is a function of being mindful. So it's not, in terms of the mindfulness, it's not a problem. It's more just sort of learning how to stay balanced in that new level, which takes some time. It's not from a lack of mindfulness. What the practice is balancing in one quite comprehensive way of looking at it are the five spiritual faculties of faith or confidence, which is a very interesting quality to begin to understand in the mind. Normally we don't give it its due, but it's it's very important in the whole development of practice. Confidence effort or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. 
it's faith or confidence and wisdom that have to be balanced. And it's effort and concentration that have to be balanced. If there's too much concentration, samadhi tend to go to sleep. It just We get so absorbed in the object and without enough energy, it's like there's the sinking mind. If there's too much energy, we get restless. And there's not enough concentration. That's why the sitting and walking is so essential. Because it just keeps those two properly balanced. You can sit if the mindfulness is strong. And if the energy is strong, you can sit for as long as you like. An hour, two hours. Sometimes people sit even longer. But after each sitting, whether it's for an hour or longer, try to walk for an hour. Minimum 45 minutes, certainly no less. And try to walk for an hour at a time. That recharges the effort factor. And it keeps this balance between the two that keeps the practice moving forward. It's almost like the walking is the fuel for the practice. Rather than just kind of coasting on a level, it keeps keeps the practice accelerating. Yes. That's why it's good to practice it. (laughs) The noting itself is a wonderful way of strengthening the effort factor. And it's one of the reasons people don't like to do it. You know, it's easier just to sit and observe. That's definitely easier to do. You just kind of sit and it's nice. You just... cruising along. To actually put a note on each moment's experience, even a very soft one, takes some mental effort. That's precisely its value. It keeps the effort factor in the mind, it keeps it growing. So it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And at the same time, connecting with the object so there's that concentration in the moment. And it just keeps everything building. In that way, it's a very, very useful tool. But again, as you well know by now, you know, it takes a real delicacy. It takes a very delicate touch to do it correctly. I think this would be a good time to sit for a few minutes. <laughs>